you guys want to open up your Bibles to Nehemiah 13, looks like we're wrapping up our study. This is exciting. Nehemiah 13, verses 1 through 9, says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave the orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Good morning. Welcome to Regeneration. All you educators, can you raise your hand? Not just teachers, but if you're a counselor, you work in the school district or system, Come on, you gotta be more proud than that. Come on. I know you're tired. You just started. See, we have quite a few. Do you guys see that? Does everyone see that? Take them out to lunch. All right, cool. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And as we are in closing our studies of Nehemiah, I pray for your blessing upon these people and also, Holy Spirit, for you to speak to each individual here in Jesus' name. Amen. So at our last staff meeting, Math. Not math, even though he's a math teacher. His name is Math. He works with our youth, and he told us about the wonderful drama regarding substitute teachers. Anyone here work as a sub before? Anybody? Yes. Anybody here work as a sub in Oakland? God bless you. God bless you. We love you. We love all of you educators, and we really value you. Whatever things you need for your classrooms or to support you, please let us know. We want to see how we can do that. Math tells us about how students act up when the teacher is not around. And so any of you teachers probably know this to be true, that your students probably act up when you have a sub. And how many subs have a really difficult time, challenging time, with managing the classroom? This doesn't just happen in school settings. This happens in most settings where there is a leader. And so this is going to happen whether it's at school or at work or in a home, you know, when you hire a sitter or something like that, you know, it happens there. And so this is what we have here in Nehemiah chapter 13. You look at Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 6. It says, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. We know that Nehemiah had this 12-year stint as the governor of the land of Judah, according to Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. So even though he governed for 12 years, 
the rebuilding of the wall, and most of the significant rebuilding of Jerusalem happened within the first year of his governorship. Because we know that the wall was finished in 52 days. And while he was governor, he was still accountable to the king of Babylon, King Artaxerxes, and the king and queen wanted Nehemiah to still serve in their courts. And we see this in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 6. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So there was an agreement between the king and Nehemiah as to how long Nehemiah would be gone and he would be returning. One of the times that Nehemiah stepped away was to fulfill the responsibilities of the king. And so this can be found in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 2. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. By the time we reach Nehemiah chapter 13, the people are feeling more like mice. You know that saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play? And so these characters in chapter 13 are getting a little bit more mousy. And the things that they wouldn't do before, they were thinking of doing now. And so there were several things that influenced them to drift this way. The one we're going to look at this morning is this. The associations we keep. The relationships, the people that we're hanging out with. Because we tend to become more and more like the people we hang out with, like the people we keep company with. And we'll see this in verses 1 through 9. Next week, we'll finish the study of Nehemiah, and we'll see the other ways that this had them drift away from God. But this morning, we're just focusing on verses 1 through 9. And before we get any further, we need to take a look at chapter 8, verse 1, which we've been looking at quite a bit. We've looked at this verse as a really pivotal verse in the book of Nehemiah. It reads this. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And from this study of the scriptures in chapter 8, the people of God recommitted and made a covenant with God, chapter 9, verse 38. It says, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So this wasn't just some flippant act of lip service. They put this in writing. They sealed the document as a legally binding document. And just like any other legal document, if the terms of the document are broken, there are repercussions for that broken term. So essentially, what they put in writing was that they were going to live God's way according to his word. Now, not only did they sign it and seal it as a legal document, but you look at what else they did in chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. So, on top of this, they make an oath to walk in God's law. And if they didn't, what did they do? They pronounce upon themselves a curse if they don't observe all the commandments of the Lord and his rules and his statutes. So these guys were really serious about commitment. They really meant it. So serious that they get specific about how they're going to live. Because you know what it is to just say you're committed to something, but you just kind of keep it vague and you're not specific about it. But they are going with specifics. 
To say that you're going to recommit yourself to God is a great thing, but how are you going to do that? And so the people of Jerusalem decided they're going to show their recommitment by living in these ways. And here, let me point out some of them for you. Chapter 10 is where they're at, starting in verse 30. Here's one way. It says, verse 30, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So this was about being a match spiritually. And here's a second one, verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grains on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So they were going to honor the Sabbath by not working on the Sabbath. We're going to go over all of these things next week. And here's a third one. Verse 32, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. So they were going to give financially towards the service of the house of God. So these three actions of recommitment were going to cost them. It was going to cost them in their relationships and money and time. And so sure, spiritual recommitment to God is more than just these three things listed. But these were the ways that they specifically pointed out for themselves that this is how we're going to live for God. We're going to keep these three things. Now keep those three things in mind as we look to chapter 13. Looking a little further into this chapter in verses 10 through 14 of Nehemiah 13. So they neglect the house of God, the church. And then back to chapter 10. Verses 15 through 22 They dishonor the Sabbath, and then in verses 23 through 31, they throw out being a match spiritually with marriage. All of these things are in contradiction to what they just committed to. All of them. Direct contradiction. And so you're thinking, didn't you just make this commitment? Wasn't this just a few chapters ago that you go through this whole recommitment thing? You do this commitment thing in chapter 10. You do the sign and sealing of it. You take an oath. You put a curse upon yourself. And this is only just a few chapters later in 13 that you're just backtracking on all of it. They just started getting serious about the Word of God. Right? Chapter 8, they opened it. They got serious about it, recommitted. And then chapter 13, all of it's out the door. They're not committing to any of this stuff. Here's the interesting thing. Isn't this like all of us? We make these commitments and then we break them. We say we're going to do these certain things and then we don't do them. You know, uh, several million men have broken their commitment to their wives who right now are worrying that they're going to be discovered by these hackers who broke into Ashley Madison. Several million. And maybe you and I weren't the guys that did that, but we've broken commitments in other ways. We've done other things. And if you break promises, break commitments, any of you lack follow-through or falsify things or lie about things. I was talking to my wife about all those guys who signed up for those Ashley Madison accounts looking for an affair, and I got really upset and I got judgmental towards those guys. And the reason being is because I personally have been affected by adultery, not in my relationships, but in a really close friend who committed that act and how that damaged I got first-hand knowledge of how it kind of hurt community, how it hurt his family. But then I needed to look at myself and not be holier than thou. Because how many of my commitments to God have failed? How many of my declarations to God have bombed? And how many of my dedications to God have just been disappointments? I can't judge. 
I need the grace of God just like many of those guys do. All of those guys do. And you look at Romans chapter 7, verse 15, it reads this, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And skip over to verses 18 and 19. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, this is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Who relates to this? The rest of you, I really need to talk to you. How do you do it? In the Journal of Clinical Psychology, researcher John Norcross found that approximately 50% of the population makes New Year resolutions. And within the first two weeks, 71% of those people actually do pretty well. What they're not saying is 29% of the people backslide within that resolution within the first two weeks. 14 days. Guess what it is at six months? Six months, 54% of the people have failed at their resolution. Over half within six months have failed. So I look at Nehemiah and people at Nehemiah's time, and it seemed like they fall under these same statistics. Because it was just in chapter 10 that they go, oh, we're going to recommit, blah, blah, blah. 29% of those people, the first two weeks, it was gone. Six months later, 54% is gone. This is probably a little bit further down the line. Romans 7 applied to them too. Just like it applies to you and me. See, we need to be honest with our failures. We need to be honest with our weaknesses. You're struggling with your finances. That's why we're offering FPU, Financial Peace University. Please sign up with Pastor Steve. If you're struggling with one of those things, like maybe you're one of those guys that signed up for Ashley Madison. I'm not going to put it past people in our church because they found, what, three zip codes in the entire United States that no one signed up for it, and it was because they didn't have internet access or something like that. But if you're one of those guys or you're struggling with guy issues, sign up with Mike Getz and Scott Poulter on going through every man's battle and going through that study with them because we're Romans 7, just like people in Nehemiah's time. We're the same. We struggle. You have some other struggle going on in your life, just please let us know about it and see how we can pray for you and maybe do something tangibly to help you. We all need God. King David wrote this, Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Back to Nehemiah, whom some of us may have an issue with on how he dealt with those in Jerusalem, namely Tobiah in verses 1 through 9. But just as we're not going to judge the people, let's also not judge Nehemiah. Okay, Nehemiah was given this call, he was given this vision from God that not everyone else received. Not everyone saw the danger that Tobiah brought into a community as clearly as Nehemiah did. And it was this bad association. And we become more like the people we hang around with. So this is something we teach our kids, isn't it? This is something that we teach people that we mentor and coach. And, and you teachers, you teach this to your students. Be careful of who you guys hang out with because you become more like those people. 
Right? Nehemiah chapter 13. Let's start here in verses 1 through 3. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Where did they get this from? This is Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3. Remember they opened the book of the law. Ezra opens it, chapter 8. This is right in there, Deuteronomy 23. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Seems pretty simple to interpret, don't you think? Deuteronomy 23.3. I mean, the clear-cut instructions. You don't have to go into the hermeneutics of this. I mean, it seems... Can't get any clearer than this. And the people signed, sealed this covenant with God according to His ways, which included Deuteronomy 23. But then you look at how they've already compromised because it's like, yeah, you know what? It's not a big deal. It's just Tobiah. It's just Tobiah. We have plenty of room here. I mean, look at this facility. We have plenty of room. And you know, as people of God, we're supposed to be hospitable people. We're supposed to be loving people. So why don't we just let them in and give them like this one tiny room and we'll just kind of let that be. And this is exactly what the priest Eliashib did. Verses 4 and 5. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. So do you get the picture? you get the picture of what's happening? Eliashib was in charge of these storerooms, but rather than placing in there what belonged in there, he put what didn't belong in there. And this is much like our own lives, isn't it? This is our life. Because if we don't fill our own minds and our hearts, our spirit, with the things of God, we tend to fill it with other stuff. We start putting other things in there, and oftentimes it's stuff that doesn't belong in there. We start putting things that don't belong. See, we're not created for nothingness. We're not vacuums. We absorb things. We take things in from our surroundings, our environments. We take all of this stuff in. And if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, with joy, with comfort, with His glory, we're filled with other things. You're not going to sit as an empty vessel. You're going to fill yourself up with something. Tobiah was the enemy of God. He was the enemy of Nehemiah. But then he had this relationship with Eliashib. He was related. And rather than obeying God's word, Eliashib compromises. Just because someone's in church leadership doesn't mean that they have all their stuff together. There are a lot of church leaders whose personal lives and their home lives, that they're, they're just whack. You jump over to verse 28. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. So, get this picture. Eliashib's grandson married Sanballat's daughter. Sanballat and Tobiah were enemies of Nehemiah and what God was doing in Jerusalem. Right? The priest Eliashib continually compromised here. It's seemingly this small thing, just 
let's let Tobiah just stay in a storeroom. You're not even going to be able to tell that he's even in here. Just give him a storeroom. And then you go to the end of the chapter and what happens? Your family with the enemy. And so you think that Eliashib's son Jehoiada didn't notice Eliashib's compromise? You think he doesn't notice these things? You think Eliashib's grandson didn't notice his grandfather's compromise? See, our young people are watching us. They're watching you and I. My children are watching me, that's for sure. And the decisions and the choices we make today, they might seem like small things today. But our children, the young people that are looking at you, the people that are looking at your lives and are watching you, they have much longer-term ramifications. They affect them more deeply. The decisions that we make today affect future generations. Tobiah fought strongly against the work of God, and now he's in the house of God. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Give you a background story on Sanballat and Tobiah here. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. That's Tobiah. It's that guy. And Nehemiah goes back to check in with King Artaxerxes of Babylon. And when he returns, the dude is living there. He's in the house. Verse 6, While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king, and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. See, leadership matters. Leadership is really important. You think back to Moses. Moses goes up to the mountain to meet with God. He comes back down the mountain, and it's just total debauchery, right? People worshiping a golden baby cow, right? This is what they were doing, and this is right after God had just delivered them from slavery. Moses steps away, and he comes back, and this is what the people are doing. Nehemiah goes to the king, and he comes back, and he comes back to find that there's evil in the house of God. Notice that in verse 7 discovered the evil. What made it evil? It defied the Word of God. Simple definition. What's evil? It goes against the Word of God. Sometimes we think that we know better than God, that we know better than His Word, when in actuality what we are doing is evil. It's going against His Word. We have reasons to think that this sin is okay or that this thought is okay or that this belief is okay where we start rationalizing certain things to fit into our personal belief system or our personal value system when in actuality it's contrary to God. It's contrary to His Word. It is evil. And while claiming to be a follower of God, while not following His Word, that is simply hypocrisy. And so it starts with a room. And then it's part of your family. It's part of you. Verse 8, And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chamber, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. 
Notice this. This is the very first time that we see Nehemiah very angry. He has reason to be angry all throughout, right? But this is the first time he's very angry. Nehemiah put up with a lot up to this point, but come chapter 13, he's had enough. And here's where some may feel a little bit uncomfortable with what Nehemiah did. He threw out Tobiah's stuff. He threw it out. And then he gave an order to clean all of Tobiah's cooties from the room, right? Before bringing in what belonged in there. And you put yourself in this position, like put your teenage hat on when if you let like a friend stay overnight or something and your parents just came in and threw all that friend's stuff out, like how you would have felt. Oh, I'm so mad at you. Now, if you think this was over the top that, you know, Nehemiah comes in, throws this guy's stuff out and cleans all his cooties off, just wait till next week. Because when we get to verse 25, pretty awesome. I mean, his confrontation goes from like PG-13 to R. Right? He cursed them, he beat them, he pulled out their hair. It's awesome. <laughs> he doesn't mess with sin. And we'll get into that more next week. But verses 1 through 9. It's the same thing though. He doesn't mess with sin. Nehemiah doesn't mess with sin. And that's what we have to do with the junk in our lives. With that stuff that's in our lives that doesn't belong. It needs to just be tossed out. It needs to be thrown out. You can't get rid of that stuff slowly and gradually. You just need to toss it clean it, and fill it with what belongs in there. You take out what doesn't belong, you clean it up, and then you place what belongs in there. That's in your life, right? That's in your mind, that's in your spirit, that's in your heart, that's what needs to happen. You don't get rid of porn gradually. You don't do that gradually. You don't break off that relationship that isn't good gradually. You kick it out. You kick it out, you clean it up, right? Get some accountability in your life, maybe install some software, and then you start filling your mind with the things that are going to set you free from whatever is keeping you in bondage. And here's another thing. You don't have to pray about it. You ever hear of those people? Like, they have this sin in their life, and then they're like, oh, I need to pray about it. No, you don't. You don't have to pray about things like that. Look at Nehemiah. We know him as a person of prayer, right? We know Nehemiah to be a person of prayer. See Nehemiah praying here? He comes in and he sees Tobiah. He's like, I need to pray. I need to ask the Lord to see if um, this is appropriate that I let him stay here because I want to be hospitable and I want to be loving and I want to be all these things. So I need to pray to find out if God indeed wants me to throw him out. Nah. He goes like, What? Boom! He's like tossing out, bring the Lysol in here, like clean it, and then fill it all up. That's not him. Sin out of here. You don't have to pray. But my computer, I spent a lot of money and I invested all this stuff, and yeah, I have a lot of porn on there, but I, I you know I, I gotta pray to see how what I need to keep. No! It's out! It's out, you clean it, and you put stuff in there that belongs in there. There's no need to pray about it. You don't need to pray about sin. It's out. The sin in your life, kick it out. We're so worried about offending people, even when it means that we're offending God. And so we've placed this higher value on tolerance than we have on truth. And that's really dangerous. Look at how Peter concludes 2 Peter, which is the next book that we're going to be studying. 
after Nehemiah, we're going to be going to 2 Peter. But look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Church, we need to take care that we are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose our own stability but to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To toss out that sin, clean that stuff out, and fill it with the things that will allow you to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ that is going to help you gain in stability. And the way you don't lose stability is you take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. Essentially, who you associate with, who you hang out with, now, I'm not saying by any means that everyone you hang around with should be Christian. Please don't do that. That's a bad idea. Every association I have, it has to be Christian. If that's the case, then what's the purpose of evangelism? You just toss it out the door, right? Like, what's the purpose? It says, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people. Are your associations compromising your commitment to the truth of God's word, your commitment to the gospel? If those associations are, yeah, you probably need to cut that out. If you're involved in those sinful activities, then definitely you toss them. You're done. You don't even have to pray about it. You're done. Because we do become like whom we associate with, and it starts out pretty small, usually. It usually starts out small. It starts out in a storeroom. It just starts out in a room, and it starts out by letting a little bit of something in that doesn't belong inside. And not before long, those compromises grow and they become like family. They become part of you. The tolerance of sin does not allow us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with joy or comfort or the glory of God. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. Let's pray. Father, I pray for wisdom and discernment for every individual in here that you would give that to them so that they would have foreknowledge and foresight as to where that is leading them. I pray that you would give them sensitivity to your spirit to know when it is just allowing something small into a storeroom, into a place in their heart and their mind, their spirit where it just doesn't belong, that you would give them insight into that and not allow that in. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the Apostle Paul sharing with us Romans chapter 7. And for anyone here struggling, Lord, we're not here to judge them. But Lord, we do want to be instruments in the process of how you set them free. In Jesus' name, amen.